Hello and welcome to The Addicted Austinite, your one-stop podcast for all things Jane Austen. In this week's episode, we are continuing our in-depth look at Mansfield Park and they're going to be discussing Lover's Vows. So Lover's Vows is a play and it has a very important role in the story of Mansfield Park. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but first I want to give you a brief summary of the play uh, and its history so that we know what we're dealing with. So, uh, Lover's Vows was written in 1798 by a woman called Elizabeth Inchbald. However, it wasn't an original piece of work. Um, It was one of four adaptations of a German piece called Das Kind der Liebe, um, roughly translated as Love Child, um, which was written by August von Kurzebeuer. Of the four adaptations of this piece of work, um, Inchbald was actually the only one that was ever performed in public and, and to an audience. However, a lot of historians and literary scholars do believe that it would have been one of those plays that was lost to time uh, had it not appeared in Mansfield Park in the way that it did. I can't say 100% whether that is true or not. Personally, I hadn't heard of it uh, before I read Mansfield Park, whereas with Northanger Abbey, for example, I had heard of Anne Radcliffe uh, before I read that novel, though. Um, But I'll let you uh, make your own minds up about that one. Now, the play is made up of five short acts, and we focus on the lives of six main characters. Firstly, we are introduced to Agatha Freiburg, is destitute and she's made homeless within the first few minutes of the first act. We then meet her son Frederick uh, who has just come back uh, from active duty and he's come back uh, to get his birth certificate so that he can get a different job and he is absolutely devastated to see his mother is in such a state Um, and is even more shocked when his mother tells him that he doesn't actually have a birth certificate because he was an illegitimate child. And we learn the story of Agatha and her first love, a man called Baron Wildenheim, who was the third of our main characters. Now, according to Agatha's story, Wildenheim was a powerful man that seduced her at the young age of 17. He promised to marry her and to give her the world, only to go off and marry a different woman and leave her literally holding the baby, Frederick. Frederick, of course, is completely outraged by this immoral behaviour, but his first priority is to make sure that his mother is looked after. He charges some of the local villagers to take his mother in and to look after her while he goes and and begs for money uh, to help her situation. While staying with villagers, Agatha is told the story of the recently returned Baron Wilderheim. He was away in Alsace, but now he's come back uh, to where they are. The villagers didn't know that she was connected to the Baron in any way. But of course, when she hears this news, she's absolutely shocked and she faints away, basically. (laughs) After that little scene, uh, we are next properly physically introduced to Baron Wildenheim. 
he is busy talking to his guest, our fourth main character, Count Castle. Count Castle is there uh, to propose marriage to Wildenheim's daughter, Amelia, who we are also introduced to. In a surprising turn of events uh, for Georgian fathers, as it goes, um, the Baron doesn't particularly want to force his daughter into marriage to the Count. Um, he he realises that the Count is stupid, um, <laughs> basically, uh, and he decides that he's not going to force his daughter into marriage. We get the feeling that he, he feels guilty about what he did as a younger man uh, with regards to the tale we learn about Agatha earlier. The idea that she doesn't have to marry Count Castle works out very well for Amelia because Amelia is in fact in love with a man named Anhalt and he is uh, the clergyman who had acted as Amelia's tutor for years and they are in love with each other. Um, so they're both happy about not having to, to marry Count Castle. So once we've gotten that little family story there, uh, we catch up with Frederick again. He has gone begging for money, um, as as we said, um, and he has happened upon the Baron and the Count Castle in a forest. They've gone hunting. Frederick has bumped into them. He doesn't know who they are at this point. Um, as the villagers said, the Baron has only recently returned to the area, and Frederick never knew him anyway. So he doesn't know who they are, and he asks them, for money. They oblige and they give him a little bit, but unfortunately it's not enough. Frederick, he has to say something and he starts crying and he starts explaining about his mum and how it's not enough money, please, I need more, you've got to help her. And eventually he gets so desperate that he tries to attack the Baron. It doesn't work, thank goodness, uh, and Fred poor Frederick is, is carted off um, to be imprisoned in, in the castle. But the Baron does actually say, go and check if, if his story is true, if you can find his mother and take her this gold, uh, take her this coin purse, um, if, if it is true. And he, he sends Anne Halt off into the village to try and find this woman. Amelia then goes and takes Frederick um, some food where he's being held in the castle. And through her conversation with him, Frederick learns who it was that he tried to attack. Uh, Baron Wildenheim, his father. Um, of course, this gets him very emotional and he asks to have a private audience with the Baron um, so that he can explain the situation. He doesn't tell Amelia at that point. Um, he does think in his head, oh, that must be my sister, but he doesn't tell her. Um, he just, he asks her and then Anhelt comes back uh, to speak to him uh, if he could have a private audience with, with the Baron. After this, Amelia goes to her father, not to ask him to speak to Frederick, but to talk about Count Castle's sexual morals. Basically, it turns out that he has been flirting with every pretty woman in the nearby area, and he is already engaged to at least one woman. The Baron tries to talk to the Count about this. It's a very confusing conversation where the Count tries to defend his behaviour, um, how, how, it's only one woman, you know, how can you expect me not to like other women as well? Uh, and eventually uh, the Count is just sort of thrown out 
And once the Count has gone, Frederick is able to have his audience with the Baron instead. Um, and this goes a lot, lot better. He explains the circumstances and their connection to each other, that he is his father and what, what's happened to his mother, Agatha. Um, the Baron is very shaken, of course. Bless him, it's a big shock to find out you've suddenly got a son. Um, and he asks Anhalt to go back to the village again to find Agatha and to bring her to the castle so that he can look after her. At first, he says that he won't marry her um, because of their station and his uh, what, what his neighbours will think, basically. But eventually, Anhalt and Frederick manage to convince him that he has to marry Agatha. It's only fair. After everything that's happened, everything he's done, he still has that moral obligation to her to marry her. Um, and that's what he settles on. So Agatha is brought back to the castle and she and the Baron have their reunion. And as reward for convincing the Baron to marry Agatha again and be seen as good and pure in the eyes of the Lord, he tells Anhalt that he can marry Amelia and everybody gets their happy ending. So that sort of sums up the plot there. Uh, it's pretty short and pretty fun. Uh, but why was it chosen to be in Mansfield Park? Well, in the novel, um, it is introduced as the play that the Mansfield gang want to put on as a performance. And Fanny has some real concerns about that. And it seems she isn't the only one because from contemporary records and reviews, the play really did split public opinion. For a lot of people, um, and the character of Fanny Price included, it was immoral and immodest because it was dealing with topics like illegitimate children and sex outside of marriage. Uh, so they wrote it off as a bad play and not to be performed and not to be talked about in polite society. For a lot of people, though, uh, myself included, I must add, um, there is a real moral heart to this play. It's just that it doesn't appear until right at the very end. Um, it, it's rather like Dr. Faustus in that way, um, that there's a lot of sin and vice and devil worshipping and stuff for the first, like, four-fifths of the play but it's not until right at the end that we see him get his comeuppance for all his bad behaviour um, and we get the moral of the story which is don't do this because you'll burn in hell forever. Anyway what is important to us is that Fanny uh, thinks that it is terribly immodest and that anyone who took part in it um, as a home production within the family uh, would be corrupted and shaded by its tone. So this moral stance against the play in Mansfield Park has somewhat confused Jane Austen readers for ages. We know, without a doubt, that Jane liked to perform with her brothers, with her cousins. They put on plays and poetry readings for the family. Um, so why is she giving Fanny this strict stance of anti-theatricality? My answer to that is that I don't think Jane is saying that Fanny opposes acting and plays and theatrics, as some interpret this to be when reading Mansfield Park. 
what I think she is doing is drawing a line between plays that are professionally performed in a theatre to an audience and plays that are performed in the home with your family for your family. In a certain way, when one goes to the theatre, you would expect to see something rather risque or political or, or out of the ordinary and dubious with its morals. Whereas within the home, the home is sort of the last bastion of decent behaviour and it's a sacred place that should never be defiled with that kind of play and that kind of acting going in on in the house. Also, I don't think that Fanny is worried about the play as much as she's worried about its effects on the Mansfield gang. She's already worrying about their morals already. They treat her pretty badly, the Bertrams uh, do, and the Crawfords are seemingly no better. They've been taken in by all this. And she's worried about what acting out these scenes and this immoral behaviour that's in Lover's Vows is going to do to them. Basically, she, she just can't trust them not to get taken in by the story and embarrass themselves and her and the family if anybody got wind of it. A lot of readers of Mansfield Park feel that Fanny is rather a goody-two-shoes kind of character, and excessively so. Um, and yes, she is certainly more pious and virtuous and strictly moral uh, than Jane's other heroines, but to be honest, where Lover's Vows is concerned, I think Fanny has a right to be worried about it. The Mansfield gang, the Bertrams and the Crawfords, have shown that they aren't concerned with behaving morally. Because the minute Sir Thomas leaves is when things start to go downhill. It's a when the cat's away, the mice will play kind of situation, which isn't the kind of permanent morality that Fanny is championing in this story. And this is reflected in the play. The Baron has a whole list of reasons to explain away his behaviour towards Agatha and to point out why it was acceptable and only sort of agrees to sort out the situation because he wants to look good in the eyes of Anne Houghton Frederick and, and later God. And it sort of presents a temporary morality that you just can't trust in people. And this sort of temporary morality that Fanny is interpreting in these characters leads to a very big part of the novel, for me at least. Um, a lot of readers, including uh, Jane's own sister Cassandra actually, think that Fanny Price should have ended up with Henry Crawford at the end of Mansfield Park. He had reformed, she would do him good, that's the end of it, why does she need to marry her cousin? But I can completely understand Fanny's point of view on this. To everyone else it might look like he's reformed, but to her, she has already seen this state of temporary morality that is in him, especially with his behaviour towards Mariah and her fiancé, Mr Rushworth. To her, Henry's turnaround is an act. It's a temporary state of being for him, and who's to say when that facade is going to drop? basically. It might have looked like he'd reformed on the surface, but if he had ended up with Fanny, who's to say how long it would have been before he went back to his old ways and started being morally dubious again and 
probably would eventually have cheated on her because he's not a very constant person. His morals aren't constant, and that's the big point um, that, that's coming out of this. And the play, Lover's Vows, the play's the thing that really sort of highlights this undesirable, inconstant behaviour and morality. And it's how Fanny decides who can be trusted and who can't. And that's the difference between her and the other characters. Because they are, most of them are sort of nice people, I guess. Uh, Bertrams aren't, aren't great. Edmund's okay. Mary Crawford isn't that bad either. Um, but any goodness that Tom Mariah and Julia Bertram have, or the Crawfords have, isn't guaranteed. Whereas with Fanny, it is a guaranteed faith and a guaranteed set of morals that sees her through the events of the novel. So sort of summing up today's episode about Lover's Vows, I don't think that Jane Austen wrote Mansfield Park as an anti-theatre, anti-drama novel, despite how it is viewed today. Um, we know from her letters and her records that when she was creating Mansfield Park, she was aiming for a more moral sort of story um, after a few shocks at the events of Pride and Prejudice. She, she does speak about wanting to create something a bit more moral that Cassandra and other friends and family will find a bit more comfortable. But but she's still doing her usual style of witty satire and she is putting society under the microscope. She's used lover's vows for a very good reason and it reflects a lot of the story that happens in Mansfield Park in terms of moral choices, basically. And each character is given a character in the play that sort of reflects who they are. So what she's doing, she's not saying don't, perform plays, don't go to the theatre, it's all amoral and awful, don't do it at all. What she's saying is, don't be blind when you're reading fiction, because none of the Mansfield gang can see themselves in these characters, whereas Fanny can. She is highlighting the irony of people's choice of fiction and entertainment, and how people are so quick to point out flaws in others but not so much in themselves and not to recognise themselves when they are lampooned like this, which of course is, is Jane's whole MO. She is constantly lampooning people. And I think this little dig at Lover's Vows that she has in this play is just carrying on that theme into her next novel. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Addicted Austinite. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, please do like it, comment on it, subscribe and share it. All those lovely things that uh, I, as a podcaster, love you for. Um, <laughs> you can reach me on Twitter at CathPriceAuthor. And you can find me on Facebook as Catherine Pressel for The Addicted Austinite. If you want to talk about the episode, uh, talk about your feelings about Mansfield Park, uh, suggest things that you want to hear later on, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, so do let me know. And now, all that is left to say, as ever, is happy reading. Your faithful servant, the author. <laughs>